what, five weeks? Like, I mean, that's like backsliding, isn't it? It's just <laughs> So, do you ever doubt? Do you ever doubt the existence of God? Do you ever doubt the goodness of God? Do you ever question the wisdom of God? Do you ever have those moments, as one person has called it, the long, dark tea time of the soul, where it's just, everything's dark? Do you ever have those moments where you begin to wonder, does God know what he's doing? Or you even wonder, is he doing anything? Are there times in your life when you look around and you wonder, Why things haven't worked out the way you thought they were going to work out? Have you ever had those moments where you wondered, why hasn't God worked things out in the way you think he should? Have there been times when you've wanted to ask God a couple of questions and say, hey, I thought thought you were good, and this doesn't look good. Have you ever had moments when you want to just question Jesus and say, I don't get it. Don't understand why life needs to be so hard, so difficult, so complicated. Or are you one of those people who are completely certain about all things all the time? I think sometimes in church, we've kind of absorbed this idea. I don't think it's been, well, I don't think I've said it, but I think it's the impression that we get that you're not allowed to question anything, that you're not ever allowed to question stuff, that you're not allowed to have doubts. And in fact, to acknowledge that you might have even just a hint of a doubt would be some kind of indication that you're already three-quarters of the way down the road to absolute atheism, right? That you can't ever question, that you've just got to believe, and if you don't believe, you've just got to try harder. And often those with some doubts end up being snubbed a little bit by the church. And to admit to the pastor that you've got doubts becomes a bit of a challenge, because now the pastor, it's his job to fix it, Right? To resolve all your doubts for you. Or, if it's not a view to a challenge, it's just an admission of defeat. And we've just got to give up. And I I think often it's neither. I think that in reality, it's just the real world that many people face. That many of us have questions. Many of us wonder what God is up to and what God is doing. Now, I think we know this, that there are very few certainties in general in life. Just about everything you enter into, you do so with some measure of doubt. Go for a new job? Well, there's no guarantee that it'll work out for you. Move to a new country? There's no certainties there. Getting married is one giant leap of faith. And there have got to be some questions or doubts on the big wedding day while, you know, he's standing at the front while she's walking down the aisle. You know, will he be faithful? Will she be a good mom? Can he cook? Can he wash dishes? Can she change a plug? Many of those answers you simply won't know for sure. We marry by faith. You take on a new job by faith. Everything, so, so much of what we do, we do by faith, and much of life has doubt built into it. 
when it comes to our faith, there, there is doubt and there is unbelief, and, and the two are not the same. Unbelief is a choice. I will not believe. I, I was reading an article this week, one of the bands that I, I listen to and follow, the band used to be a Christian, the guy, lead singer, used to be a Christian, um, loved their music, but this week he said categorically, Jesus is not my Lord and Savior. That's a deliberate a will issue. I will not believe. I choose not to. But sometimes we're not quite there, but sometimes the doubt does sneak in. Sometimes the doubt does mess with our minds. And I don't think doubt is a sin. But I think that not dealing with your doubt, letting doubt linger and fester, can well lead to sin. The greatest prophet that ever lived the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, in fact, the greatest man ever to be born, doubted, had questions, wondered, thought about changing allegiances. And we're going to read this morning, if I have a Bible, I think it's in my bag. Can um, somebody, you know, what, what kind of pastor is this? Thank you, Bradley. Um, we're going to read this morning about Jesus' encounter with John the Baptist, right? So we've been reading encounters with Jesus over these last few weeks. Thank you, Bradley. Um, and uh, um, in Luke chapter 7, and uh, we started with the story of the centurion, the man of power. Um, and then we moved to the warrior, who was a powerful man. And then we moved on to the widow, who was powerless, and their encounters with Jesus. This morning, we're going to read John the prophet. And his encounter with Jesus, although like the centurion, Jesus and John don't actually come face to face in this story. Let me read from Luke chapter 7 from verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not weep. 
For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. See, here's how this encounter begins, right? John's disciples come and tell John all these things. What things? Well, these things, the things that we've been reading the last couple of weeks. They come and tell John, a widow's son has been raised from the dead. A dead guy sat up and began to talk. And they talk about the centurion's sick servant. That's one of those tongue twisters, right? The sick servant, centurion, sick servant, sick. Um, and, and that centurion's servant has been healed via Bluetooth, right? Long distance healing. Perhaps they even told John some of the content of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus had preached. And so John hears these things. Dead are raised, sick are healed, good news is proclaimed. If you're John the Baptist and you've been looking out for the Messiah to come, what would you be saying when you hear this news? Surely John is delighted, right? I mean, this isn't just rumors. This is John's disciples who are eyewitnesses of these things. And they come and tell John these things. But despite hearing that dead people talk, John goes, I'm not sure. Are you really the Messiah? Can you, can you clarify things for me? Are you really the chosen one of God? And you can hear the doubt in those questions, can't you? Are you the one? Are you really? Are you the Messiah? Not sure, a little uncertain. Yes, dead people are, are being raised. Yes, sick people are being healed. Yes, good news is being preached. But uh, are you actually the Messiah? And then John has a little extra on the end. Or shall we go look for someone else? And that moves from doubt to almost, almost a threat. I think the, the NIV version says, translation says, are you the one or should we expect someone else? But I like how the ESV has put it, where it's not just are we expecting someone, but shall I actually go out and start looking deliberately for a replacement? Right? I'm expecting the plumber. The plumber that I expected has not come. I'm going to look for another one. That's kind of what John is going here. The Messiah that I expected, I'm not sure if he's arrived. I think we should go and look for someone else. Those are strong words from John, right? That, that, that's, that's doubt and a little bit more. It becomes almost a threat. And you've kind of got to go, John, what more do you need? What, what more evidence do you want, right? Dead people, come on. Dead people are walking around. Not like zombies, but like, you know, they've literally come back to life. How can you possibly doubt? This might help us understand why John is doubting. Do you know where John is at this moment in the story, Luke didn't tell us here. He's told us earlier. You know where he is? He's in prison. He's in prison. John has been going around preaching a repentance of sin. He has called the nation to, to, of Israel to confess the evil and to repent of it and to turn their backs on it, to turn away from sin. And many are being baptized as evidence of doing just that. And then John gets political. He pokes a stick into a real bee's hive, shakes things up, and he gets stung. Herod is the king. He is the figurehead of the people. And surely the king should participate in this national repentance. After all, the stories of the Old Testament show us that as the king goes, so the nation goes. 
Herod, though, Herod's a bit of a rough guy. His brother comes to visit him for holidays, and Herod gets it on with his sister-in-law, with his brother's wife. They go and sneak off into dark corners. And, and now his sister-in-law has left his brother and moved in with Herod. So the brother's been sent off back home, and Herod is now... There's no indication there's an actual divorce going uh, that has gone on. It's just Herod's having an affair with his brother's wife. That's a bit rough. And it's clear in the Old Testament that this should not happen. This is inappropriate behavior, and it's particularly inappropriate behavior for a king. When the leader does something like this, man, we, uh, we need to deal with it, right? Because as the king goes, so goes the nation. The king should be setting the example. I don't know if you follow cricket. This week, there's chaos in Australian cricket. What a surprise. Because their captain has had to resign because he had a bit of a texting affair with some lady four or five years ago. And, and you're like, really, in our modern day and age, do people really care about that? The point is that even in a godless secular world, secular society like Australia, there still are some standards, right? And they still regard that their captain needs to set an example. And that's what John is asking from Herod. You need to be setting an example. And so John has said, repent, Herod, you need to put that woman away and get rid of that woman. And that woman is not happy. And that woman has pressurized her lover and Herod has locked John up and John is now in prison. And so here's why I think John is beginning to have these doubts. I think in part it's because he thinks Jesus is not really doing the real job of the Messiah. John came preaching repentance of sin. John said that the one who would come after him would come with fire. Not a nice little flame to sit around and keep your hands warm. Not even a reference necessarily to the coming of the Holy Spirit and little tongues of flame upon people's. But in judgment, that's what fire talks about. He's going to come with his winnowing fork and he's going to poke you with it, right? That's what the Messiah is coming to do. You're going to burn. That's what the Messiah is coming for. John was setting things up for the great judgment of God on evil. And what's happened? Well, the evil of Herod has gone unpunished. And instead of Jesus unleashing judgment on this royal disaster, John is left in the hands of a wicked man. Where is this judgment? Is what John's going and so John's real question here is, is God just? It's, it's the kind of question that a lot of people may ask. ask. It's the kind of, you know, why does, God allow, why does a good God allow evil to prosper? Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked get away with it? And for John, it's not an academic question to sit talking about amongst a group of friends while we're sipping coffee, having lattes. John is asking this because he's stuck in the middle here. He is a righteous man who's been doing the job that God has assigned him. He has enjoyed a measure of success in this job. And his reward for his righteousness is prison for 18 months. And it's not a nice Swedish prison where you get your own recording studio. This is, this is a nasty hole in the ground. Does the delayed justice of God sometimes make you wonder? When you hear and read about evil unchecked in the world, do you, do you get a little mad? 
Whether it's the suffering of children on the other side of the world or, or, or unfair business practices that shut you out of a business deal. Is God just? And you read in the news this week and we read about corruption and sabotage at ESCOM. And we read about the hearings into the riots and the indifference of the police force that, uh, that would seem to be under orders to do nothing and allow evil to run unchecked. And, and you wonder, why? why? Why did God not step in and do something? Why is it that evil reigns unchecked and we get left in the dark? Sometimes literally. And then I think there's an even deeper question to this. This isn't just John asking questions about the justice of God. This is, this is a slightly separate thing, second thing as well, where he's, he's kind of saying, hey God, I did everything you asked me to do, and maybe even a bit more. I was simply obeying your command and your call on me. And now, what reward do I get for serving you? So this is more than just about the justice of God. This is now also about the fairness of God. Be fair to, to me personally. I, I need some fairness here. What have I done to deserve this? And if you've never questioned the justice of God, I wonder if you've perhaps sometimes questioned the fairness of God. And have you had moments of going, I don't deserve this, I don't think. I didn't do anything that terrible this week, did I? I mean, I've done my best to be good. I've been to church, paid my tithes, sang the songs, even sang them with a little bit of emotion, squeezed a little tear out after one of them. I've really tried, right? I put up with the preacher for another week. I let the taxi come in in front of me. Yes, I didn't hoot. Right? And now, the result of all that goodness, you're in prison. You're in the dark. The depression descends, or you get sick at just the wrong time, or the geezer bursts, or the car breaks down, and, and you go, what have I done to deserve this? Haven't I served you enough, O oh God? Don't I deserve better treatment than this from you? I don't know if John expected to end up in prison. Maybe he did. I think poking a stick at Herod, he, he perhaps expected some kind of retribution here. But I certainly think that he expected to be rescued. But 18 months... Is a long time just for doing the work of God. And so because of questions of justice and a question of fairness, John says, are you really the one that we, should, we thought you were? And then that whole, should I go and look for someone else? Should I find a replacement? And sadly, many people do just that. We question his justice. We question his fairness, and because we think we're not being treated right by God, we'll turn around. We'll go somewhere else. We'll find someone else to deliver us. We'll find someone else where, where they will treat us fairly. And we'll prop up our own little God, because Jesus hasn't come through for us in quite the way we thought. And perhaps if I pin my hopes on, on, on success in business or, or the applause from my friends, perhaps then I'll be lifted out of this pit of despair, right? At least John had the courage to ask Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this? Does Jesus say, well, let me give you a clear and firm defense of the justice of God. Let me explain it all to you. No, he doesn't do that, does he? 
In that hour, so John's disciples come, they tell him, John's looking, Jesus looks at him and says, okay, hold here. In that hour, Jesus goes and heals some more sick people, casts out some demons, gives sight to the blind. He get, puts on a public display. That should sort things out, right? Because now John's disciples have seen again more miracles. They can go back to John and tell him again that we've seen Jesus doing the same things again because that will resolve all doubt because in the Bible, every time someone sees a miracle, all doubt is gone, right? No, it doesn't work like that. There's multiple times in the Bible where miracles are performed and people still don't believe. So then Jesus adds to what they see with the following words. Go back and tell John, the blind walk, the lame see, the deaf run. <laughs> Not quite. Um, the dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. And it's a great message. And what makes those words even better is that they are words that come straight out of the prophecy of Isaiah. And John knows his Old Testament. John would recognize the words. He would know that these are the very things that Isaiah said would accompany the Messiah. Isaiah says, when the one comes, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the dead will be raised. And Jesus effectively says to John, let me settle your doubts by turning to the word of God and pointing out to you that Isaiah, the words of Isaiah are being fulfilled by me here and now. And that should be good news, right? Because we all want Jesus to settle our doubts. We want a word from Jesus that says, it's okay, I am the Messiah. God is just, God is good. But I think what's more telling in this passage are the words that Jesus doesn't say. See, the next phrase in Isaiah's prophecy is that the Messiah will come and set the captive free. So can you see where this is perhaps going for poor John? The disciples go back to John and they say, ah, he quoted Isaiah. And John's like, oh, that's fantastic. He said that the blind will see. Oh, good. He said that the, the deaf will hear. Oh, it's excellent news. He said that the dead will be raised. Yes. He said the good news will be preached to the poor. Fantastic. And the next bit? Well, he, he, he didn't say anything about the next bit. But the, the, the captives being set free, and I'm a captive. Did he say that the captives would be set free? No. He was He was silent. On that bit. Can you get a sense then of a little bit of John's frustration? What's kind of sad is we don't get to see John's response to what Jesus says. Does John hear this from the disciples, hear that Jesus said nothing about him being set free, and go, okay, that's fine, I'm good with that? Or did John lose it a little bit? Did John fall apart? Because Jesus says nothing to John about freedom. When in prison, is it enough to know that Jesus is Lord? Can it be enough? Can we in our darkest moments be content that Jesus is enough? Even when he's not doing what we expect of him, is he enough. 
You know how the story of John ends, don't you, right? A few months later, there's a birthday party. A teenage girl comes up and gives a bit of a dance. Herod gets very excited and says, I'll give you anything you want. It is his kind of stepdaughter after all. And to keep mommy happy, you've got to keep stepdaughter happy. So anything that you want. Mommy says to the daughter, best thing for you to ask for is the head of John the Baptist on a plate. What does a teenage girl want with a severed head? You can ask Sam afterwards. But Goth, I don't know whose severed head she'd want. Maybe Noah's. I don't know what she'll do with it. Um, but there you go. And Herod, feeling a little guilty, gives her what she wants. And she gets a head. Good, eh? Um, and John, in prison, wondering about justice and repentance and judgment on sin, dies at the hand of a weak despot on the womb of a teenage girl who's been manipulated by her adulterous mother. And where is the justice of God in that? Where is a good God in this? Were his doubts resolved before he died? Did he spend those last few months, perhaps even those last few moments, wondering about the Messiah? Is he really the one? John wanted a Messiah who would come with fire to judge sinners. Instead, he has a Messiah of grace who finds sinners and preaches love and forgiveness and the mercy of God and leaves John to die in jail. And is Jesus enough? And those last words of Jesus to John are this, right? Blessed is the one who is not Offended by me, blessed, happy, content, fulfilled, satisfied. I mean, surely blessed is the one who is set free by the Son. That's what John wants to hear. Happy and content is the one who's been set free. I'll take that. Blessed is the one who is not offended. The NIV translation says, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Commentators go backwards and forwards about what this phrase might mean. I guess I quite like this Blessed is the one, in, in some ways it's a bit like this, blessed is the one who, who clings to me. Even in the face of doubt and uncertainty. Blessed is the one who clings to me even when all is dark. Blessed is the one who clings to me even in prison. Blessed is the one who clings to me even when the world doesn't make sense. And even when God's plans seem a little opaque. Blessed is the one who, who clings when the justice and the goodness of God are just not quite clear to see. And in those moments, who do you cling to? When life turns dark, where do you go? You can cling to your reputation. You can cling to your success and your wealth. You can cling to whatever is your nearest security blanket. But Jesus says, cling to me. Even in doubt, even in uncertainty, cling to me. Then Jesus turns to the crowd. Once John's disciples have left, Jesus says a few things about John. He says he was a true prophet. The crowds, you didn't go off looking for some soft psychophant here, but you came for the prophet of God, the greatest man who ever lived, the last of the Old Testament prophets, greater than Elijah, greater than Moses. And this man had questions and doubts. And why was he the greatest? Because he is the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. And there's none greater than him. And then Jesus says, and you and I are greater than John. 
John was the climax of the old era. But Jesus inaugurates an even greater kingdom, where even the lowest citizen has greater privilege than the very best of the old. John looked ahead dimly to something that he quite couldn't understand. Are you the one? How's this going to work out? Whereas you and I look back with clarity to the event that changed the world. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we get to understand more clearly than John the grace of God. And, and to understand this, that the judgment that John was looking for has come. That the judgment of sin was enacted in the body of Jesus. Judgment fell on him so that we might be declared the righteousness of God. The justice of God was met at the cross. Is God just? Yes. His justice on display at the cross. And the two responses to this, there always are. The sinners and the tax collectors celebrate the goodness and justice of God. They repent of their sin, they find grace, they're baptized and they follow John and they're like, God is just. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious, the good, the pastors and elders of the local synagogue, they reject the purpose of God. Instead of finding justice and mercy from God at the foot of the cross, they seek self-righteousness in their own efforts and in their own good works. And you and I, we're faced with the same dilemma as the cloud. How will we respond to the message of John the Baptist and repentance of sin? How do we respond to the message of Jesus, the good news preached to the poor? Will we celebrate the justice and mercy of God at the foot of the cross? Or do we reject the purposes of God and seek our own justice and our own self-justification? And we know this, right? Don't think that the rejection of God meant that these priests went off and did terrible things, murdering people and crippling ESCOM infrastructure, right? They weren't committing crimes of great evil. They rejected the purposes of God by going on their way and being good, being nice, being polite, being obedient, being law-abiding, going to church. Who would have thought that going to church can be a, a form of rejection of the purposes of God? A rejection of the, of the purpose of God does not necessarily mean that you become irreligious. We can reject his purposes in our very acts of religiousness because our religion so easily and so quickly morphs into a simple plan of self-help. I can save myself. And so at the end here, Jesus says to the religious, you're never satisfied. You hate John because he's too ascetic, right? He, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke. Oh, he's law-abiding. Mm. But then you reject Jesus because he's too free and easy. He eats and drinks with sinners. The religious nut jobs of the world are never satisfied because they want Jesus, they want the Messiah to dance to their tune. They want him to sing their song. And the Messiah is bigger than that. And so the religious reject the purpose of God. And so at the end of the story, Jesus does not answer John's doubts. He doesn't get all philosophical about justice and fairness. He doesn't offer an exposition of Job and, and deal with the question of theodicy. And Jesus simply presents himself to John and says, Am I enough? Uh, we could have spent, I could have spent lots of time this morning 
illustrating and showing you how God is just and how, you know, how, how, how God can be good and yet children can still die of cancer. And, and we, you can come later and tell me about free choice and sin and goodness knows what and we can have these discussions. And that would kind of miss the point, though. Because Jesus doesn't try and defend the justice of God. God himself, when dealing with Job, doesn't defend his own justice. Sometimes it's helpful to have the answers, but the bigger issue is simply this. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for you? We don't know about John. He does, it doesn't appear that he sends any more messengers. He doesn't ask Jesus any more questions. We don't hear from him again. But I'm going to assume that Jesus was enough for John. That even in prison, even in those final moments when that sword came down, even then, John had some dim idea of the future that Jesus was inaugurating. And in those final moments, John knew Jesus is enough. The Messiah has come to open your blind eyes that you may see him. To cure you of the leprosy of sin that destroys your soul. To open your ears that you may hear the good news. To bring you back to life. And the Messiah has come to set you free from the chains that wrap around you. He has come. He is good. And he is enough. I was tempted for us to sing in closing this song this morning, but it's... Not really a singing kind of song. It's a listening kind of song. So I'm not going to sing it for you. But just the words are cool, right? Lift your head, weary sinner. The river's just ahead. Down the path of, sal- of forgiveness. Salvation's waiting there. You've built a mighty fortress, 10,000 burdens high. But love is here to lift you up. Here to lift you high. If you're lost and wondering, come stumbling in like a prodigal child and see the walls start crumbling and let the great gates of glory open wide. All who strayed and walked away, unspeakable things you've done. Fix your eyes on the mountain. Let the past be dead and gone. Come all saints and sinners. You can't outrun God. Whatever you've done can't overcome the power of the blood. If you're lost and wondering, come stumbling in like a prodigal child. See the walls start crumbling and let, let the gates of glory open wide. If you're lost and wrecked again, come stumbling in like a prodigal child. Let the gates of glory, uh, see the walls start crumbling, let the gates of glory open wide. So come all you weary and find this morning that Jesus is enough. I'm going to ask the band to come on up to the front. And we'll sing, I think we'll sing Wonder in closing again this morning. But let's pray as the band come up. Lord Jesus, we come to you in the midst of uncertainty and doubt and uh, frustration. And um, I think some of us wonder from time to time where you are and what you're doing and what you're about. And yet, Lord, you are good and good to us. 
And Lord, in the midst of our darkness this morning, whatever it is we may face, may may we be willing to say, Jesus is enough, always enough. May we this morning be lost in wonder at the glory and majesty of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand?